This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Tone in role-playing. The Madness Dossier. Morale while writing. And the Cathars. sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed, they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Tim Isaacson asks, Ken and Robin, what would your advice be for folks who are very worried about getting the tone of a game right? I'm thinking specifically the thriller tone of Knights Black Agents and the cosmic horror tone of Trail of Cthulhu. Robin, do you have, um, is tone something that emerges from play? Are there tricks that you use to nail it in early and count on the colonizer effect? What's your, what are your tone-based secrets? Well, the first secret is if you're very worried about this or very worried about anything, don't worry. Um, <laughs> tone is something that is uh, difficult to convey. A little of it goes a long way. And as a GM, there's only so much that you can do to convey the sort of nexus of mood and imagery and theme that we all sort of lump together when we think of the, the tone of a game. So your players, even though you can sort of set up with them at the beginning when you talk about the campaign you can tell them what the tone is telling them is not such a bad starting <laughs> technique you can ask for their buy-in on some level especially as the campaign goes people are going to default back into their basic habits of play so if you have a player who's sort of a kibitzer who likes to uh, riff and make jokes there's only so much you're going to get them to 
tone that down, even in a thriller or cosmic horror atmosphere. The other thing is that as, as a GM, you have many fewer tools to convey tone than, say, a filmmaker does, and you can use bits and pieces of them at a time, but since you don't have that full array of techniques, the expectation on you to do that is not so great. So the first bit of advice I would give you is to not to worry about it so much and just to do what you can when you can and don't sweat it if it feels like mostly the campaign you usually run for that group of people with a few little grace notes. So I think for the rest of the segment, we can talk about what those grace notes are and how to instill them. Yeah, I think that with a lot of things like this, it depends on what sort of experiences, usually media experiences, although sometimes if you're lucky, literary experiences, your player group has in common. So if what you're worried about is, gosh, how do we, how do we make my Knight's Black Agents game feel like a thriller? You know, during Care Gen, bring over your copies of, you know, the Bourne trilogy or your copy of Ronin, put that into the DVD player and play it while Care Gen is going on. The players have all seen it a million times and that will sort of remind them the sort of flavor you're going for, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the musical cues will remind them as they're, as they're doing care gen. If you're a group that plays with music already, you can even have soundtracks loaded up. Um, James Semple, of course, has some lovely soundtracks for both Night's Black Agents and Trail of Cthulhu that deliberately aim for sort of reinstilling tone. If you don't use soundtracks, just count on those memories of the visual for the thriller. Harder to get the cosmic horror tone from film because there are so very few films that do it correctly. But again, in Trail of Cthulhu, you can possibly count on people's memories of of other visual key moments, depending on, you know, your crowd, they may have been watching True Detective, and so you can get the nihilist bleakness, or they may have been watching Alien, and so you can get the sort of sense of the, of the al- literally alien, the inhuman, the extraterrestrial bad place. A lot of it is going to be more bits and pieces that you're calling on people to remember. But it's as simple as saying, when you peer through the gate, it looks like the wrecked planet that the Nostromo finds in Alien, except somehow even worse. And, and the mucus seems fresher somehow. <laughs> and that will sort of... Well, that, that's one thing I, I want out of my gaming experience is uh, highly fresh mucus. Well, that's what that's what Cthulhu-based role-playing has been bringing you for decades, yes, Robin. mucosity freshness. That's right. In 1929. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and another form that is really good at conveying tone is, guess what? Rule books and supplements. Hey. Uh, they are full of lovely illustrations that you can use to show your players in a well-illustrated game will convey the tone of that game accurately, even though illustrators, of course, work for uh, different uh, games over the course of their career. The, uh, you know, Jerome's illustrations for Mutant City Blues uh, capture that setting really well, and his, uh, his and Chris Huth's illustrations for Ashen Stars really show you how that space opera setting is just a little bit different and very specific to that setting. So before the uh, first session during character generation, and also later on, pick a couple of illustrations to sort of show people to remind them what the world is like. So even if it's a matter of uh, finding a picture in the book and sort of revolving a scene around that, especially in the early going in the first few sessions, if you're holding up illustrations to show them, it's like, oh, you're there or you're meeting that guy, or the sky kind of looks like this, or this is what your ship looks like. Um, Holding up pictures uh, goes a long way toward conveying the abstract 
non-textual part of tone. And guess what? The textual part of tone is often in the words, in the interstitial fiction or in the setting descriptions. In what we like to call the text. Uh, The text, as we call it, (laughs) yes. yes. So uh, try and get your players to actually read some of the game material. And uh, one of the things I always say is it's much more valuable to let players read everything or as much as they want to read, because sometimes they don't, than it is to try and keep the secrets of the setting. It's always much easier to come up with a new secret than it is to convey these indistinct qualities that make, together make up the tone of a game. So ask them to read some stuff. And in this age of PDF downloads, it's easier than ever to get material into players' hands so they can download and read bits. You can give them you know, little reading assignments, uh, check out this section of about this place that you're going, or look at this. And that uh, gets them thinking about the game ahead of time, which is also a virtue. And that can probably do a better job of instilling mood than you can do at the table. But Ken, there are ways to take a text and highlight stuff in it and find ways to introduce it, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Your, your notion of taking bits of the text goes along with the sort of you know, taking this a bit at a time, because if you've got, you know, a part of the text or a given illustration that you want to aim at, you present it to the players in a bite-sized chunk. Similarly, you as the GM, you can pick chunks of the game where you're going to really try for tone. You don't have to try for tone for all four hours of the game session. First of all, it's probably impossible. Second of all, you'll burn out your tone generator. Third of all, you may burn out your player's tone receiver. What you want to do for something like Knights Black Agents, you find the thrilleriest scene of the game that, of the of the game that you're running that night, of the session you're running, and you make sure let's make sure that one really feels like Ronin or that one really feels like a Bourne movie. And then once you're confident and capable of, of doing that, you can make another scene do that as well, or another scene, and sort of be able to move into that tone whenever you need to, and that's just as good, even better, I would say, than maintaining, trying to maintain that tone for four hours, just knowing that you can always just turn the key and get into that tone. Similarly with Cosmic Horror, you can't maintain an entire game session at the pitch of Lovecraftian Cosmic Horror. Lovecraft can't maintain a story at the pitch of Cosmic Horror, and he doesn't try it. It's not desirable. You want to have ups and downs, yeah. Right. 90% of a Lovecraft story is generally some degree of exploration or exposition, occasionally feeling a little weird and winky, and then there's a point at the end, ideally with Lovecraft as close to the terminal climax as he can get it, where things are just really bigger and more insane than anyone can comprehend, when the bottom really drops out of you. And in a role-playing game session, that is going to be your final scene or maybe your big climax to the adventure, whatever it is that you've got going on. So you don't have to aim for a cosmic horror tone in Trail of Cthulhu all the time. And in fact, you're you're violating the source material in a way if you try and turn things up to that level and and, and keep that uh, that fire burning at uh, at full the entire time. And, and, you know, similarly, you can take a single illustration out of the, out of the book, like you were talking about and say, this is my, this is my set piece. So maybe breaking it down into smaller chunks will also help. Right. So I guess, uh, the thriller question I think is pretty easy to answer. And I think you pretty well handle that already by, you know, show them chunks of the Bourne movie, but because there aren't as many media examples to show people for Lovecraft, uh, first of all, what is, a cosmic horror tone because cosmic horror uh, purely speaking is a theme Mm -hmm. Uh, tone is the way that you 
introduce that theme and the emotional reaction you have to it. So what would you describe as as instances of cosmic horror that uh, Tim or others can then try to evoke? Well, I think that when you're looking at um, cosmic horror in the in the source material in the fiction you're looking at like i say that part near the terminal climax in call of cthulhu it's that last scene with cthulhu rising up out of riley it's not even when they land on riley in the johansson manuscript it's when they begin and it's not even when they begin to fall into the non-euclidean angles it's when the doors open and cthulhu emerges and a mountain walked or stumbled when literally human sensorium breaks down uh, in the uh, Mountains of Madness, the true cosmic horror only begins when, at the very bottom of that uh, cavern, when they have conclusive proof that the Shoggoths aren't dead, and then it reiterates when Danforth looks back over his shoulder as they're flying out of the out of the mountains. A cosmic horror in Lovecraft is almost always literally, you know, as he would say, you know, inexpressible, unnameable. You can't express it. Human language breaks down. Human sensorium breaks down. The point of cosmic horror is that we are not capable of understanding the cosmos. Therefore, the scenes in which cosmic horror is most strongly present are scenes that either make no sense or create a non-verbal, non-intellectual, uh, visceral reaction of, of, of sort of cowering uh, smallness. So it's an anti-epiphany right, in yeah, which it, our understanding collapses. Yeah, and so you can get individual bits of it. I've, I've mentioned repeatedly the sequence in uh, The Thing, the original The Thing, uh, when the, the, the soldiers are out finding the crashed spaceship and they begin to back up to, to find the edges of it and the camera keeps pulling back and the soldiers keep pulling back and you find out this was a really giant spacecraft that crashed and in the 1951 thing it's even more impressive somehow because that's a really big circle of guys around that thing and it you know if you think about it as a filmmaker you're thinking well what a cheap special effect they don't have to show the spaceship they just have a bunch of guys lined up but it's more effective that way than any of those you know endless cycles in prometheus through the giant hr geiger sculpture that they've left lying around i i think that um it's that sort of and if you think about the differences between those two uh, emotions, those two senses, you can realize why cosmic horror has to sort of remain just outside the experience as opposed to be brought fully in like a fully realized set or a fully realized CGI piece. So having identified what this is that we're looking for, this anti-epiphany, this collapse of understanding, you can then go through either the published adventure that you're going to run and look for the moments when that happens and look at the different characters that the players will be interacting with and find ways to allude to that directly or otherwise so that if you've uh, got a character who's sort of their local fix-it guy who arranges things for them and then sends them on their way and the either your original idea of how this would work or the adventure itself doesn't really allude to that in any way try and find just a little hint of something where for a moment he might talk about you know, his process of seeking understanding. You know, he might hand them a, a religious pamphlet and tell them how sure he is about that, or he might talk about his uh, collapse into atheism, or every different little bit that you choose to highlight and bring in the tone can reflect on that theme or emotional charge in a different way. But if you just find little ways to introduce that and to bring that in, that gives you your, your tonal moments right there. Yeah, the the moment in the campaign in the scenario that you're running or in the session that you're running 
that is the most cosmically horrible should be the moment that you're leaving little, you know, iron filings to magnetically point to. You can't see the magnetic vortex. You can merely feel its presence. And if you can get a sense of where that presence is and what that presence should be doing, you can make little magnetic filings throughout the campaign line up on it, whether it be little character notes like you mentioned or little things that you see in the landscape that don't seem to really mean anything but are somehow unsettling and these aren't clues that they can go investigate these are things that they experience so they're the things you call for on a successful sense trouble role perhaps that they have this um uh, or an unsuccessful sense trouble role rather that the things that you describe in lieu of telling them what the threat is you just assume that they're always making unsuccessful sense trouble roles because again we can't actually sense the real trouble that's going on in this universe which is that azathoth exists Right. So an example of that, you know, you could just keep a list of little images to throw in that uh, have a thematic connection, but are free floating plot wise. So you could have a bullet point list of, oh, uh, you fail your, oh, you have one of those floaters in your eye. And for the moment, a second, it looks like an insect, but then it goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's never a point later on when that is referred to. But again, through a couple of levels of separation that brings in the motif and therefore brings in the tone. And I think we've uh, pretty well covered this segment as much as we can, and it's time to uh, creep away before we experience our own anti-epiphany and the podcast collapses in on itself. Sir Thomas Mallory's La Morte d'Arthur is one of the foundational documents of the Western fantasy tradition. It is also a remarkable pain to slog through with aimless plots and numerous continuity errors. Jeff Wickstrom's Arthur Dies at the End gives you a painless, even enjoyable way to attain Mallory knowledge. It's a detailed examination of the text, chapter by chapter, presented in an informal, chatty, even humorous style. Five handsome ebook volumes are available through Amazon. Something about a sword and a stone? Morgan Le Fay, Queen of Gore. Sir Tristan is just awful. Sir Galahad is better than you. And Guinevere, best nun ever. Each volume also contains numerous additional helpful material. Such as a guide to every named female character. There's fewer than you might expect. A guide to the almost entirely male cast of characters, from Arthur's awful father, Uther Pendragon, to Sir Meligrance, who keeps trying to bed and or kill Guinevere. An index of night names, including actual night names like Sir Grumor Grummerson, Sir Wizhard, and the Duke of Dutchman. A listing of every horrible thing Sir Tristram does. Including his straight-up murder of Sir Nabon's son. His abandonment of his wife, Isude the White-Handed. And all the times he screws with Sir Dinadan for no reason. The final volume, as a special bonus treat, includes a likewise detailed and chatty examination of H.P. Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, because after all that Mallory you'll want an aperitif. Six different women named Elaine, three different women named Isode, and Nimue, Nimue, Nimue. All five volumes are available on Amazon.com, and until the 1st of September, the first volume is on sale for 99 cents US. That's Arthur Dies at the End by Jeff Wickstrom. Here on the Ken and Robin podcast, we have a segment called Among My Many Hats, in which the 
implicit self-promotion of the rest of the show turns into explicit self-promotion. And this week, Ken, you are donning a hat full of insanity and closely spaced information. And that is your new book, The Madness Dossier, for GURPS from Steve Jackson Games. Ken, can you start out by giving us the nutshell pitch? The nutshell pitch on this is that history that we know is a lie created by the aftershock that overthrew the Anunnaku who created and controlled our language in the previous version of history. Sadly, they are not completely dead. They are merely asleep. Their servants are filtering into our universe and using the pre-planted control codes and uh, control services within our language to rebuild their fell empire. Fortunately, the good guys, Operation Sandman, uh, are there to stop them, to keep the Red Kings asleep, to keep the Anunnaki out of our history at literally any imaginable cost. And so this is a campaign slash supplement book for GURPS. Right. It's a GURPS horror supplement, I guess you'd put it. So it's, yes, yeah, so that GURPS thing where they have the hierarchy of supplements within supplements. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is the core activity? If I'm playing uh, in a campaign that you're uh, running of the Madness dossier, what is my character doing and what are all of the other characters doing along with me? Your characters are Sandmen. They're members of Operation Sandman, which is a top secret uh, Anglo-American uh, unit that exists pretty much entirely to uh, figure out what's going on with these Anunnaku and stop them. And so you are going to reality uh, temblors and subduction zones. You're checking out ru- ru- rumors of pragmaclasts, which is the technical name for reality shards, pieces of the old history that somehow survived into ours. And they might be crazily numinous pieces of, of the old history, like the Holy Grail, or they might just be weirdly inexplicable pieces of history, or they might kind of be both. Um And uh, you're investigating the spore, if you will, of these beings. And then when they do show their faces, you're hunting them down and killing them. What would be an example of an introductory adventure that I would run if I were running Madness Dossier? I think with an introductory adventure, there'd be reports of some kind of weirdness happening, usually in the Middle East, but sometimes other places, that would be the spore of an eruptor, and the eruptors are the servants of the Anunnaki who are coming into our history to create a cult, or to, in some other way, cause humanity to begin to awaken to its old masters. And you would find uh, evidences that it might have been using one of the Sumerian glyphs that exist as ultimate control for human brains. It might have been using mimetics to create uh, maybe a cult of, of some sort of neo-Sumerian pagan cult, or maybe some, you know, a, a trend in architecture that makes things look more ziggurati. You don't know what they'd be doing necessarily. You'd find the leads to the eruptor. You'd follow those leads back to its presence, and then you would have to figure out how to kill it and then erase all of its influence on the local area. And that might involve merely erasing the memories of the people that it's talked to, or it might mean erasing the people that it's talked to, because any little bit of history B that remains in our uh, history is is toxic. It, it corrodes away at our reality. So that's Adventure 1. Uh, as the campaign develops, how does it escalate? What would Adventure 5 or 6 be like? <laughs> adventure 5 or 6 might be that um, you've figured out that there's a larger 
cult going on, a bunch of eruptors all working together, uh, led by a Shedu, which is uh, the Babylonian um, angel figure, or a Kululu, which is the creepy uh, Babylonian culture hero, the fish man, or it might be a... Um, a, a enemy action from, say, the, the, the Russian psychic warfare program or an unknown third force. Or you might merely see a longer-term mimetic campaign that you're uh, beginning to sort of plot the edges of. Or you might have failed in missions, you know, three through four, uh, three through five. And so, therefore, uh, reality itself is less stable and you're beginning to have uh, little reality temblors and reality quakes. And you have to sort of figure out some massive action you can do to uh, re-stabilize uh, reality in either that subduction zone or worse yet in, you know, the whole country. So Ken, how did you of all people come to write a history jamming horror game? It doesn't sound like me, does it? Uh, it basically was a little tiny campaign frame in the back of GURPS Horror 3rd uh, Edition, which I did back in the long, long ago, and I did uh, three little mini-campaigns in the back to illustrate the kinds of things you could do with horror, and I did uh, Tim Powers' ripoff, you know, very standard pirates and, and monsters, and I did a uh, steampunk after the Martian invasion, their secret war against us, and so I wanted to do something big and cosmic, but A, because uh, Steve would not have signed off on doing straight Lovecraft, and B, because I'd been doing straight Lovecraft a lot of other times, in my own, I switched up and I sort of swapped in William S. Burroughs for H.P. Lovecraft, and I said that combined with uh, things like Neil Stevenson's uh, Snow Crash with the mimetic uh, power of the Sumerian language and with the uh, Borges, uh, Tlan, Ukbar, uh, Orbis Tertius thing that I, I, I come back to uh, repeatedly uh, about the uh, constructed universe that's replacing ours. And then uh, with uh, Mary Gentle's concept of the reality quake from her incredibly great historical fantasy, literally, novel Ash, which is uh, just, you know, mind, it, it was mind-blowing when I read it. It's probably still mind-blowing. And, and those three things sort of became the bricks in my pyramid of the Madness dossier. And so it was, it was really... You know, where, what's the, what's the Venn diagram caused by those three forces? I do a, I set a campaign in the middle of that and I always keep it tuned for cosmic horror and techno thriller because those are two, um, <laughs> as, as we, as one can tell, uh, from the previous question, those are two tones or two themes or two, uh, structures that I'm very familiar with. So, uh, GURPS fans, I'm sure, are clamoring for this, but people who, uh, play with other rule sets are probably wondering, how much of this is GURPSy specifically and how much they can take and import and use with their own rule set of choice. Well, the, uh, it, like every GURPS book, there is a big chunk of it that is just the backstory. That's just the, the history and the action and things like that. And then there is a chunk that is straight up GURPS rules. And if you are good at translating GURPS rules into your own rule set, uh, pretty much all of it is, is going to be useful because it doesn't just sort of list a you know a, a a set of modifiers. It sort of describes their effect in game. Even the uh, section where I go through the GURPS advantages and disadvantages, that there's a lot of flavor text in that and descriptions of of things that happen in the universe because that's the way to make an advantage disadvantage list interesting instead of tiresome. Uh, the templates are you know full of of GURPSy knowledge, but they also sort of describe the kind of characters that you might want to play. I, I think that it, it's got more GURPS content 
than, say, GURPS Horror does, but less GURPS content than, say, GURPS Vehicles does. So if, if, if you've got some <laughs> sense of, of that mid-space there, uh, that, that's where it is. But there's, you know, it's 65 pages. I would say easily 35 pages of it are nothing but uh, pure setting, creating goodness. And then even in the remaining 25 pages, the rules are very much interspersed or um, uh, marbled, if you will, with, uh, <laughs> with, with more del- delightful setting. So... So uh, you had a little sidebar there on what disadvantages, for example, work poorly with this campaign frame. How do you go about deciding uh, from the vast panoply of GURPS disadvantages that have uh, been written up over the years, which ones are Madness dossier suitable and which ones aren't? Well, this is the sort of thing you have to do with any GURPS uh, campaign. It's a mugs game. I think it's sort of the early mistake that everyone makes. I made it, certainly, with GURPS to assume that this giant book is full of everything that has to be in your game, as opposed to everything that might be in your game. The goal, I mean, I think the zeroth step of any GURPS campaign, whether it's one you've written or one you're you're just going to play, is to go through that giant book and pull out the tiny fragment of ge- of game you're actually going to play that day. And so, with uh, the Madness dossier, it's simple to take things out that aren't going to work for you know. For, for high action badasses, so you can't, um, you know, have hemophilia, for example, in, in gunplay because you just bleed out and die and it would be no fun. Um, you can't be an inhuman, so, you know, you can't be electric uh, or, you know, have no feet or whatever. And then there's some things that are just generally point crocked, like, for example, a game where there's going to be a lot of gunplay being terminally ill is just free points. Um, and then in a game about uh, brainwashing, playing a gullible character is is like playing a character who, you know who deliberately takes double damage from the ongoing uh, source of damage. So, what campaign is being terminally ill not a point crack? I, I think that if you're playing a uh, a generational game, maybe you might want to think that terminally ill isn't one or one that is in theory going to um, uh, happen around a longer term sort of a story where your terminal illness actually can drive the story as opposed to give you free points. You can imagine creating any number of fantasy worlds, for example, in which uh, being terminally ill makes you special, different, and shunned. Um, You can imagine plenty of places on this earth, in fact, where that's true. Right. So it's really the shunning part rather than the I'm going to get to have an extra cool character until I then get to replace it. Until I I suddenly um, uh, cough and fall over, yeah. So speaking of crunchy bits, uh, you've got one called Esmology. What is Esmology? Esmology is the imaginary social science that I sort of lifted from Michael Flynn's Country of the Blind. It's sort of what I've called Cleology in other couple of places, except it's even more so there. Uh, Esmology is from the Greek esmos, meaning hive of bees, and it is the uh, skill or discipline created by knowledge of the Anunnaki control codes and how they made us work that allows you perfect predictive knowledge of what social groups of humans will do, right? Because they know how we're programmed, and so therefore, by assuming we'll follow the programming, you know which direction the uh, police will go on a search, or what floor of the hospital will get evacuated first, or how Congress will vote, or um, uh, whatever the specific sort of uh, human collective action is, especially one that's happening in a pre-programmed or pre-set fashion anyway. So what are the parts of uh, human behavior that we who live in this uh, universe uh, think 
are human, but are in fact uh, pre-programmed into us. Well, um, besides uh, social activity and language, nothing, <laughs> or rather everything. So as long as you uh, don't talk and don't act um, uh, in concert, you're all right. The the Anunnaki built us as a or, or built a slave mentality into us, and it's the action of revolting against that that moved us into our current history. Everything before 535 A.D. is a screen memory. It's a scrim. It's something we've made up uh, as a result of the trauma of this uh, of this ontoclism, this reality quake. Uh, and so we are really basically still perfect slave creatures. It's just that we shoved our masters off somewhere. And the one of the sort of longer term goals for Project Sandman, maybe not for your characters, is to figure out hacks around those control codes to break them down finally and fully. As it is, though, currently, all Sandman can do is use those control codes less well than the Eruptors and less well than the, the Shedu can. And that, of course, sets up the great sort of uh, agon of the game, whereas in order to protect humanity from alien slave masters, you have to use the alien slave master's tools to do it. And that is the that's the internal uh, psychological horror component. And so where can people find this fine product? This fine product is available, like all fine Steve Jackson products, at uh, Steve Jackson's own online uh, game and bookstore, Warehouse 23. So I think you go to warehouse23.com, I believe is where it is. It may be on... There's a link from SJ, sjgames.com, that's for sure. And is this a, an e-product or an e-product and a hard copy? This is an e-product. A hard copy depends on how much toner you can steal from your job. But it is a, uh, it, it's very much a, um, a standalone PDF like most, uh, well, like most game products are in a lot of game companies. And Steve has been supporting GURPS really, really impressively with e-books. Um, and so as we move further into the 21st century, that's the same as... Really, really supporting GURPS impressively. Well, I think uh, we've completed our overt plug and can move back to covert plugs. Dive, dive, dive. Ken, have you heard of Shotguns v. Cthulhu, the pulse-pounding collection of action-packed Lovecraftian tales from Stoneskin Press? I have, because I have a story in it, and you edited it. Of course you do, because that was a rhetorical question for marketing purposes. Would you be asking, because Pelgrane Press, Stoneskin's mothership company, has a special deal on Shotguns v. Cthulhu until September 1st? Another rhetorical question, but I'll allow it. Yes, until September 1st, if you go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a hard copy of Shotguns v. Cthulhu with all of its icker-spattered madness, you get not only an immediate ebook download, as is Pelgrane's won't, as is Pelgrane's won't indeed, you also get an immediate ebook download of Schemers. Would that also be a Stoneskin Press anthology edited by you? That's less rhetorical question, but a leading one, but the answer is again, yes. Would this genre-spanning anthology veritably drip with tales of trickery, subversion, and betrayal? It not only would, but does, from such authors as Ekaterina Cedia, 
Jesse Bullington, and Tobias Bacall. A fine accompaniment, then, to Shotgun's selection of fear, suspense, and bloodshed from writers including Scott Glancy, Dennis Detwiller, and Dave Gross. To get the special ebook Schemer's bonus deal, just go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a print edition of Shotgun's V Cthulhu as you normally would. No coupon code or tricky link required. Will it expire on September 1st, 2014? Just as sure as a Glock-toting Shoggoth is looming up behind you. You're joking, right? I wish I was, Ken. I wish I was. The chutter of IBM Selectric Keys, the glug 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 of fine bourbon into a jelly jar, <laughs> tell us we have entered once more the uh, friendly confines of How to Write Good. And here in How to Write Good, we are discussing the sort of uh, psychological horror, if you will, of writing as we continue our tone-based quasi-theme. Robin, what's what's going on inside the writing good head as opposed to the writing good hut. Right. So what I thought we'd talk about this week, as you suggest, is our questions of discipline and morale, because uh, writing is a mental exercise. It exercises and tires the brain. And there are a lot of challenges in being a productive writer. Uh, I'm sure, Ken, you are also sometimes asked how you find inspiration to write. But really, it's not about finding inspiration. It's about finding the level of mental energy at which you can be creative and either enter the flow state that is required for uh, writing an original draft or not necessarily required, but very helpful it's, to... It's, it's very nice to have that, certainly. Yeah, some days you don't enter the flow state and you're picking... It's like pulling teeth. Um, and then also that this Set, uh, condition of a focus that you need for revision and, and uh, rewriting. And uh, I think there are a lot of people who aspire to write and are sort of waiting for the sort of epiphany that, that gets them down in the chair actually writing. And what I would suggest, first of all, is if you are sort of thinking of maybe being a writer someday and kind of daydream about that, you might want to just Enjoy those dreams. Yes. Uh, you might want to think about them in the in those terms. In the same way that I daydream about um, uh, being thin. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or, you know, hanging around with Scarlett Johansson or, exactly. or whatever. As it were. Right. Uh, well, except that in theory, one can work very, very hard and become thin. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yes. yes. Well, some people work uh, hard enough to get to hang out with Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson. That's true. They, they, and mathematically, some people do that on a regular basis. Right. Such as her husband, I think. Chief among. Yes. And so, uh, but, you know, writing is, is difficult. And if you can think of some other way to fulfill yourself, uh, it's, it's difficult to do and difficult to find a market for. So if you can think of something else to do, do that instead. Mm -hmm. um, and other than that, it's a matter of sitting down in the chair and uh, doing it and doing it over and over and over and getting good at it. And also a matter of, uh, assimilating enough other influences that you, your combination of all of those influences plus you, plus all of that time you put in, that becomes your voice. So writing is much more about discipline than about inspiration. And there are pitfalls and traps uh, about thinking about disciplines. Uh, Ken, how do you approach the whole issue of, of discipline as you work? Well, I mean, the 
Discipline question, I mean, part of it is imposed from outside. If I don't write, then I don't get paid, and I don't get to live in my house where I keep all my belongings, and my cat goes hungry, and all manner of horrible things eventuate. So there's a degree to which the discipline is externally imposed, and what you and that's what puts me into the chair on days that I do not internally impose it, is the knowledge that I'm, you know, letting, you know, Simon and my cat and my wife down by not doing it. The internal discipline... Uh, comes from the same place that internal discipline in any discipline comes from repeated practice and getting into making that a habit, making that a thing that you do and then sticking with it. I, I compare it, I compared it, you know, sort of jocularly to physical exercise, but I, I assume that it's the same sort of process. Um, I stay, <laughs> I stay well away from physical exercise, as you know, but my understanding is that you have to sort of show up at the gym and you have to do your reps and you have to work out and, and swim your laps or, do, or or lift, bro, whatever it is, and that has to happen over and over and over again. It's not good enough just to do it whenever you feel like it, and it's the same process with writing, that the act of sitting down in the chair and producing text, it's the presupposition before you can get anything else done, that if you don't have that discipline to uh, to sit down in the chair and write, then, like you say, you're better off just daydreaming about it. For me, there's, uh, and I think for uh, probably most writers, there's a high degree of non-magical ritual about it, mm -hmm. that you are trying to trick your brain into entering the difficult state of concentration that is required to write productively and well. Yeah. And so, for me, routine is a big part of it. And if I break from that routine, if, for example, I start my day with a dentist appointment, rather than the hour or so putatively puttering around doing nothing, but really revving my brain up and letting my subconscious work on mm -hmm. whatever the task of the day is, I find that not only am I, you know, my drop in productivity is often 100%. It's not just the amount of time that I spent at the dentist and coming back from there is lost, but the whole day goes. And uh, likewise, other non-writing tasks uh, that come along with uh, doing what we do. And in our age now where everybody's sort of entrepreneurial and you're on social media and you've got multiple projects going, there's more and more intrusions on your time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, early email block of things that you have to jump on right away becomes more and more of a challenge to uh, deal with. So if you're starting out as a writer, I would say, you know, try and design the routine that's going to work for you and keep working for you but the routine is, is your friend. It's not a trap, but it's the set of signals that you send to your brain that tell it to get started. Right. When I put the, the headphones on, and which I can only do at night because, you know, you never can tell who's going to phone you or what's going to happen. But, you know, once, once it's, it's after midnight, I can put the headphones on. That is a very powerful signal to my brain that, oh, now we're going to have really great ideas and start writing them down. Or... Um, I have a bag of M&Ms by my uh, desk, and the M&Ms are rewards for my brain. They're at the other end of it. Like, oh, look at that. You got you get, you get got actual work done. You get to have a, an M&M or two. And that is, you know, it's the, the crudest kind of operant conditioning. But like you say, that sort of sense of um, uh, ritual and continuity 
is is it's it's that same sort of um, operant conditioning. It's what you need because you need to be able to put yourself into the place where you have written before, where it's a reflex to write, where it's a routine or a rut even to write, so that you start writing as opposed to doing any one of the literally billion things on the internet that are more fun than writing. Right, which is everything, everything on the internet with the that there possible is. exception of a certain number of pictures you shouldn't click on. Yeah, don't um, don't go there. And another thing is about controlling self-doubt, right? The enemy of discipline uh, is self-doubt. And if you find yourself procrastinating well, a lot... the enemy of my discipline is just sheer sloth. But yes, with many people, it's self-doubt. Right. Uh, well, sloth is often a uh, disguised self-doubt. Not mine. Right? That it's, uh, well, uh, I guess your lesson is be can if you can. Yes, well, that's my lesson in so many things. And and my lesson is how to try and be can, right? Yeah, right. Um, a, a lot of the writing advice that I see um, on the internet or a lot of people posting their word count for the day um, seems to be, I think, counterproductive in that it uh, put you in a state of stress or worry about where you are as a writer or how much you've produced or whether you're good enough or uh, whether you're going to meet uh, editorial expectations when your work reaches the stage where it meets an editor. Well, you got to get there first. And a lot of it is is about finding a state of calm where you can um, find a way to uh, get that a sense of feeling uh, beleaguered or harried or uh, frightened or uh, worried of what uh, other people will think of you. Uh, the harshest critic most writers have is in their head, uh, and you should only let that critic out of its cage when uh, it's useful, and that's during the revision stage. Now, these things are all very, very easily said, um, and I think a lot of listeners will be uh, listening and thinking uh, it's much harder to do that, to banish self-doubt. And this sort of goes beyond, I think, the purview of this podcast into um, more of a self-help area. But there are uh, various um, mind hacks that you can uh, use to sort of shape uh, your uh, your mood and your uh, approach to life. And that uh, as much as you can, finding a way to uh, counter those uh, those deep-seated feelings of, of self-doubt is, I think, what a lot of people are really asking about when they're asking about how to be disciplined and how to sit yourself in that chair and how to keep doing it, is how do I find the motivation, is, I think, a matter of finding the right mental frame in which you can give yourself permission to write things that may not be that great the first time and then fix them, and also give yourself permission to write the things that are in your voice and are not trying to be what someone else wants them to be. Because if you look at all the things that you really love, whatever those are, those are almost invariably the result of one strong creative force doing what works in that context. So, uh, And that's, I think, a, a great weapon against self-doubt is fidelity to your voice and what it is that you want to do. Yeah, it, it, with a lot of these sorts of, you know, internal psychological questions, there's a, there's a limit to what we can say or give advice, like you say, you know, be Ken, which is really unhelpful for people who don't have my brain chemistry, I think. Um, and, and so I guess it's one of those weird things where you'd, you even want to say, no, once you've done it a couple of times, you'll realize that you're actually good at this and you, you'll find your own voice and you'll become more confident. But of course, that's not necessarily true. I mean, there's plenty of writers who you could read biographies of if you're so lost to reason as to read writer biographies that um, 
you know, they never found, they, they were plagued by self-doubt their whole career, even though they were producing, you know, terrific works, you know, uh, you know, every few years, something great would come out of them. But one imagines that in, or one actually knows from their diary that in between that, they're just as crippled and, 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 and plagued and, and, and miserable as they were before the first book. And with some people, you know, saying, well, I can only write once I've fixed this problem with myself is not necessarily going to be the right answer. Uh, in the same way that, you know, I can only go work out once I've fixed my addiction to chocolate is not necessarily the right answer. And I think that with writing, with a lot of it, it, it really does come down to just how badly do you want to have done this, and do you want it so badly that you're willing to, you know, just bull through the self-doubt, to bull through the um uh, the temptations of of the couch and the and the roku to to just force this book to be done and there i think it's less of a changing the external forces working against you or the internal forces working against you as reinforcing the internal forces demanding that the thing be done and sometimes it's the external forces demanding that things be done you know like i've alluded to previously the mortgage or whatever right and we, we don't have to go to biographies <laughs> to find uh incredibly creative people who do great beloved work who are racked by self-doubt and uh uh you know there are some of our closest friends and colleagues fall yes. into that category. Exactly. And you can't argue that because they suffer from self-doubt that their work is worse uh, because you can see their work and it's great. Yeah. Um, I would hope that there are ways that people can let go of that, that suffering or let go of the idea that inculcating stress is the best way to be uh, creative, that uh, in a lot of ways... I think that it's uh, an impediment that those people have taken on board and are working despite of, not because they are self-flagellating. No, no, I think that internal self-torture, in um, that, that sort of myth of the romantic artist, that unless you've been tortured, unless you're suffering, you can't produce, I think that's one of the many pernicious myths that has come out of the Enlightenment or the right. post Enlightenment. Right, along with, you know, you must be a monster in order to... Uh, right, yeah, it, or it doesn't matter if you're a monster or a jerk as long as you're also a, a creative artist. I mean, plenty... The entire mythology of the artist is, is pernicious wrongness, but I think that buying into it, buying into any sort of mythology as opposed to looking at, as you mentioned, sort of the facts on the ground, what actually produces words in your case, then do that more is is maybe the the best advice that we can give and then leave the larger questions of what does it mean to you know the guy who gets to write the book about you later on yeah i mean right a blank page is a problem to be solved and so if you just uh tackle that the way you solve any actual problem that's in front of you in your life instead of the great dread producing problems that by definition you cannot actually productively deal with mm -hmm. if you just ask yourself the question of the moment you know how do i start this story. Where do I need to go now? Mm -hmm. What paragraph do I need here? And then when you're revising it again, do your best to let go of the issues of, you know, will I be remembered as an immortal? Will everybody hate me when this comes out? Whatever shape your bugaboos take to focus on how do I make this paragraph as good as I can make it now? Mm -hmm. And you're not going to make it better than you can make it now. You're just going to make it as good as you can. And so once you you focus on what your actual creative problem is at that moment in front of you, hopefully those bugaboos will get further away because you've given your neocortex something closer at hand to deal with. And a lot of these 
uh, dreads and anxieties are a, a symptom of your the brain that you've taught to be revved up at all times, not having anyone anything to chew on, so it starts to chew on you. Right. Yeah. If you look at it like um, a lawn to be mowed, maybe as opposed to a masterpiece to be created, you can at least get started. You can say, "All right, start shoving the lawnmower down one side of the lawn," and you say, "You know." Uh, you know, in a hole in the ground, there lived not a hobbit because that's uh, under copyright a halfling, and then you start going, and that's your, you know, however it is you get past that that first cursor, and then just keep getting past it, and you know, as I think we've mentioned pre- previously in the hut, you know, maybe your first draft needs revision, but you know, revising a first draft is a million times easier than writing a first draft. So once you've gotten over that edge of the sledge, I think you're. You, you, you can trust the downhill progress once you feel like you're making it. Right. And, and the last thing I will say is that uh, sustained writer's block is almost always a symptom of something. If you have been writing, if you've been capable of it, and now you're not, um, that's a symptom of something else. And it may be something that you uh, want to talk to your mental health professional or your uh, religious advisor if you uh, go to those folks. It may be another bigger problem that uh, the writing block is just a symptom of. Right. It's not its own thing. It's it's part of a different, bigger thing. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, it's time for us to uh, exercise the discipline to move off to our final hut. Our creaking tread on the cobweb stairs, the eerie frisson as a portrait of Madame Blavatsky glares down on us, the creak of the brown leather chair as we enter the precincts of the consulting occultist cell that we're once more about to discover some secrets of weirdness and history. And this week, we are going to look at the Cathars. The Cathars have been in the big Google document in which I store bullet points of topics for future episodes, I think pretty much since we started, but I was recently reminded by listener Joe Taylor that we haven't gotten to them yet. So, Ken, <laughs> let's get to the Cathars. Uh, this is uh, like the Templars. There's a distinction between the historical thing and the mythic thing as it comes up in occult lore. So, let's start off by talking about the actual historical Cathars. Who and when were they? Uh, the historical Cathars, by and large, were a Gnostic heresy that emerged in southern France, uh, although it was at that time, whether that was southern France or its own country of Occitan was sort of part of the issue, uh, but it emerged in what we know now as southern France and was stamped out in the Albigensian Crusade. They were called the Albigensians because uh, Catharism, as uh, we know it in France, was born in or around the town of Albi, and so Albigensis means that they were the people whose faith was born in Albi. Uh, and the Albigensian Crusade basically burned them out with the sort of charming uh, lack of Christian charity uh, that is associated with, their, with the word crusade. And as I alluded, it was also a convenient way for northern France to explain to southern France that it was in fact southern France, not Occitan. And so it became also a fairly major cultural struggle against the primarily the Duke of Toulouse, who was a rival to the King of France. 
uh, for power. Yes, and the admixture of faith and politics is also something that we think about when we hear the word crusade. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, the final uh, sort of battle of the Albigensian Crusade happened in 1244 at the fortress of Montségur, which was besieged. The last of the Cathar Perfecti, which is what they called their sort of um, uh, high religious leaders, committed suicide on the top of the mountain, and everyone else was given the opportunity to um, uh, repent or burn. A lot of the surviving uh, Cathar hierarchy chose burn, and so they were. And other people, uh, sort of laymen and, and supporters, uh, got off with, you know, really steep confession or having to give their cows to people or, or whatever it was. But there was a big um, uh, sort of a, a full-on, what I want to call re-education program, I guess you'd want to call it. The Dominicans come in and begin to clear out all of the, the Cathar hangers-on. That takes about another hundred years. But by the uh, mid-14th century, the Cathars are pretty much dead as disco uh, in France. And that was their uh, ultimate fate was to go down under the uh, hooves, if you will, of a bunch of crusaders who were in France, not in Jerusalem. And so what was it about their beliefs that was so different from the norm that burning them seemed like a thing that ought to have been done? Well, we don't actually know for certain because the Cathars were, of course, heretics, and the response to heresy was to set it on fire, not to engage it in, you know, repeated intellectual contest. So what we have is mostly what the Catholic Church accused them of. So to things like, you know, they ground up babies and ate them with pepper, which is the standard thing that people have accused people of for 2,000 years. You know, the Romans accused the Christians of it. You can add what are more likely things that they believed or which things that they, um, uh, uh, the very few examples they're preaching seem to indicate they believed. Fundamentally, they were dualists. They were Gnostics. They believed that the creator of the world was a demon, not the actual good God who doesn't care about the world because it's made of filthy matter and he's got better things to do. Uh, that led them into a disbelief in procreative sex, the belief that procreation was evil because it produced more uh, people who would be born into the control of this demon God. Right, and suggesting if you wanted them to go away, you would just wait for a while. In theory, you would, except it turns out that uh, you have to wait a long while, and the Cathars didn't believe it so much as to, you know, prevent Stop everyone doing from doing it. It was only the perfecti. And again, because it's a Gnostic uh, belief, there is an innate belief that there is an elite who know the truth, and the sort of sheeple below them, who as long as they follow the elites... Uh, well, you know, that's that's as may be. And so there is a, a degree of, of keeping secrets from the masses that is anathema to basic Christianity and was very much an anathema to the Catholic Church, which believed, not with uh, unreason, that the secrets being kept were particularly dark and heretical ones. And, and so once you've gotten to the point of there are um, there there is a the god of this world is an evil god and you can't have procreative sex. You are basically really up against uh, the Roman Catholic beliefs and Christian beliefs in general. You know all the way up and down the line, and it takes very little for you. I would say specifically, it takes the existence of a powerful count who doesn't like the king of France to get you a uh, crusade called down. And, and then you can keep going and, and believe and, and see things like that they apparently had a, a ritual of suicide for their highest uh, perfecti that is, again, you know, heretical, certainly. Um, they have other sorts of uh, beliefs. You can get arguments back and forth now as to whether or not they believe that women were 
fundamentally damned subcreatures or actually humans. Um, you can, uh, I suspect that the evidence is more the former than the latter, and that the latter is mostly New Age apologists for the Cathars, but uh, because that's pretty much what a lot of Gnostics turned out to believe. Right, because uh, Gnosticism is something around which there's a lot of contemporary romanticism mm -hmm. that, uh, and there's a disjunction between that desire to cast them as a spiritual alternative and a lot of the nasty things that they actually believed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so this, this is the, the historical, uh, Cathars, uh, but, uh, now it's time to leave mere reality behind and get into occult mythology. So do the Cathars figure in occult mythology while they still exist or is that, are they taken up later by later occult writers. Well, I mean, in the time that they exist, which is to say in the Middle Ages, occult belief is pretty much just belief, right? I mean, everyone believes demons are real. Everyone believes that there are secret... I mean, it's a little before you believe that there are secret conspiracies of demon worshippers. That comes in with the um, uh, early modern era. But there are people who believe that the Cathars are literally uh, led by Satan or by demons, and so there is a degree of occultism, but the real sort of boom in making up nonsense about the Cathars comes in the mid-19th when secular anti-clerical historians of France are looking for things to throw in the face of the old regime. And this is something of an existential struggle for them, because remember, France has gone through about nine revolutions in which they've been secular, and then they've been Catholic, and then they've been secular, and then they've been Catholic. And the secular historians feel like they really need a bunch of smoking guns and silver bullets to take down the Catholic Church once and for all. And so people like Jules Michelet go in and, with a sort of delightful cavalier disregard for actual fact, decide that the Cathars were a bunch of uh, good people who are persecuted by the evil church, and it is not a huge step from there to say that they are persecuted because they hold within themselves a wonderful mystery and the true knowledge of the world, and that is sort of the, the underside of this, of, of the romantic movement, is that in the one hand you've got sort of the Victorian, you know, classifying everything and science is on its march, but just hand in hand with that, you have that nonsense is on the march, that you start making up literally <laughs> romantic ideas about uh, the things that you've just decided are true. I think I just heard the episode title. <laughs> you think you've just heard the episode title. It's always fun when that happens. But, you know, so at the time, for example, people thought the Cathars had a lost treasure, but um, it is in the late uh, 19th that people say, oh, their lost treasure is obviously something of an occult and spiritual nature, not just filthy gold. And then it is um, our buddy Otto Rahn, the SS's point man on Holy Grail research, who floats the idea that um, the Cathars had the Holy Grail and that that was their magical treasure. And it is from Otto Rahn's books and from the creations of French myth makers, both cynical and uh, political, that you get the modern Cathar mythology. And that Modern mythology then spread into English uh, language occultism, basically with uh, our buddies Bajent, Lee, and Lincoln when they did Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and the Cathars blow up and become the, the, the giant industry of occult uh, monomania that we have now. Now, if you want to use uh, the Cathars in your games, the most obvious way is to play Montsecur 1244 from Thoughtful Games mm -hmm. by uh, Frederick Jensen. How else uh, can you incorporate Cathars into your gaming? 
Well, I mean, in a modern-day uh, conspiracy game, obviously you have you know plenty of, of texts allowing you to hook the Cathars into everything from Nazi Germany to Soviet Russia to uh, the secret uh, conspiracy of good guys that fights Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. And, and so you have any number of uh, what I like to call universal joints or hooks. Everyone calls them hooks. I call them universal joints. Um, to <laughs> plug the Cathars into... Uh, your ongoing conspiracy or your ongoing story, literally, no matter what it is. And by now, you know, even if you've got aliens, you can say, oh, well, the Perfecti have to keep their alien blood intact so that they have their alien superpowers, and so that's why they don't have procreative sex with humans, because it, it, it maybe they can't breed true, or maybe they would, in fact, create monsters, and that's where the legends come up. And so they're up on their on their holy mountain having alien sex uh, and, and touching fingers and, and glowing blue, and then they come down and there's new Perfecti, and everyone's like, like, oh, look, it's a Holy Cathar miracle. Well, since this episode is all about motifs, uh, how would you uh, use the Cathars as a hook for a Madness dossier adventure? Uh, for a Madness dossier adventure, um, the Cathars are one of those uh, people who, I think, in a Madness dossier adventure, because they have the notion that our Earth is created by demons, you have the notion that they, either by ingesting herbs or through psychic discipline, usually in the Madness dossier, the notion is that um, uh, that, that you uh, can create uh, psychic uh, powers in human beings through stress, uh, the cat, or they got a hold of a really powerful reality shard that, that messed them up, and that was the Cathar treasure. That they have realized the source, the, the source truth of the world, and that the Albigensian Crusade becomes maybe the ancestors of Project Sandman, and so you want to go back and dig into those records, and once you dig into those records, you find out that, yes, indeed, the Neo-Cathar cult that has been started now is an attempt by some eruptors to allow people to start believing in these sorts of, uh, of, of Gnostic demiurges again, and then it's just one step away into having them worship the Gnostic Demiurges or bring them back through some sort of nonsensical magical ritual. And, and so you would start, you know, in, in digging around in the south of France and maybe you'd have a flashback in which you'd play your characters as uh, knights in the Albigensian Crusade riding through towns and slaughtering everyone in the name of, you know, history to keep the sort of grotesque parallels alive for your characters. So is there, do you have a favorite uh, crazy theory or crazy writer uh, uh, who worked on the Cathars a lot? I, well, I mean, I'm really very, very fond of Holy Blood, Holy Grail. I read that, I think, probably right as it came out. And I thought that it was uh, just... A, sh a real masterpiece of dragging everything in, and I and it came out back in in what in eighty uh, two, and so I I, I read it in um, eighty two or eighty three, and it at that point in my uh, career, meaning a uh, uncontrolled plummet, um, <laughs> <laughs> I. I, I it, it was my first exposure to a lot of these sort of, uh, it was the first exposure of everyone who spoke English to a lot of these things. And so therefore, I sort of, I, I never believed any of it, but I recognized really top quality elliptony when I saw it. And so I still have a, a sort of a, a, a love for, for those guys. I think that they uh, did, a, did a dab job of that. I think that if you want to go uh, into sort of the modern era of Cathars, that something like uh, Pinknet and Prince's uh, the Scion Revelation or the Templar Revelation, those books that exist to explain that uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail is uh, the creation of dupes of the Cathar Conspiracy, and that these books will blow the real Cathar Conspiracy uh, lid open. I think those are good, but they kind of depend on having read Holy Blood, Holy Grail. I think that 
like a uh, good proper mythos, a lot of it is just building on each other, which means a lot of it is just, you know, books that rearrange each other's research, which is a shame. If you can get a copy, which you generally can because it's been republished by, I think, Baron Company, uh, Crusade Against the Grail by Otto Rahn is worth reading, if only to realize how many of the things that are unquestionably accepted by your New Age goofs were invented by a Nazi back in the 1930s. Um, I think that that's, a, that, that's a, a fine book of history, and if you're capable of reading um, uh, uh, books by Nazis with a sufficient uh, distance, then you can probably get some good stuff for your game out of that, too. So a, a padded envelope arrives on your doorstep. Uh, it's uh, addressed to the Ken Height Memorial Library, and you open it up, and inside it is a contemporary account dating from uh, the 13th century. What fact do you most hope is in there about the Cathars? As a uh, conspiratologist, the fact that, that, that I most hope is in there is what was the treasure of Montsegur and what happened to it? Um, you want to know that uh, because that's sort of the, the, the keystone that will flavor the campaign. I mean, it's different if it's a UFO engine or the Holy Grail or a big bag of um, uh, gold from Palestine or whatever it is, whatever, or the, the, you know, the Hope Diamond, I don't know. Um, whatever the thing is, that's going to shape your, your, your story. Um, as a historian, I think what you want it to be is just the Cathar Bible. You want, you, you want to be able to finally answer all those questions about what are the parts they actually believe versus what are the parts that the Catholic Church, you know, said they believe versus what are the parts that uh, local peasants a hundred years later believed. Uh, there was a tremendous historian named Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie who went into uh, the historical records of a little town named Montaillou and found the interrogation of sort of the uh, tail end of the peasant Cathar faith. And he published it, and a lot of people then said, well, this must have been what people believed 150 years before when it was legal to believe that. And of course, that's nonsense. But it gives you one of the best looks at the late sort of remnant of, of Catharism. I think it'd be fun to see the Cathar Bible. The trouble is, of course, that some morons would publish it and it would become a church, but it would be historically valuable. And so do you have a, a recommendation for a, a entry-level uh, text into the actual history of the Cathars? Uh, my entry, my, I don't know if it's an entry-level text, but my recommendation for anything on, on Gnosticism is a book by Yuri Stoyanov, The Other God, which is a history of Gnosticism and dualism in uh, the West, and the West broadly stated. It goes back to ancient Persia and the Zoroastrians, and if you take away from that book only that Persian civilization is vastly underrated by the heirs of Herodotus, you are doing better than virtually everyone. I, I would recommend that book for pretty much any of your Gnostic needs. His chapter on the Cathars, like all of his chapters, are very good, and if you don't read the footnotes... Um, you can, you can get through it without too much trouble. There are, most of the general books about the Cathars now are sort of special pleading, I find. There's not a, um, uh, there's not a ton of, of sort of straightforward, you know, this is what we know about the Cathars by someone who doesn't have a, a, a anti-clerical or a pro-clerical, although that's much rarer, axe to grind. Malcolm Barber, I think, may be the, 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 the closest to a neutral source that you can read. He has a book called, cleverly enough, The Cathars, which I own, which is pretty good. Well, uh, once we hit the bibliography, we've hit the end of the segment. And once we hit the end of the fourth segment, we've hit the end of the podcast. Dun, dun, dun. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Arthur Dies at the End. Stone Skin Press. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Protect our history from Sumerian archdemons by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Rick Neal and Robert Abrazato. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or dualist heresy by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>